So I don't feel any pressure tonight because I just keep telling myself I'm loved. Isn't that great? I'm like, it helped me. I felt nervous and I'm like, you know what? I don't even have to worry because even if I blow it, I'm still loved. Isn't that great? I mean that honestly, not sarcastically. Like, I do think it's great. So uh, if you would turn in your Bibles to Genesis chapter 1 again. Genesis chapter 1. Oh, you shouldn't be turning off on me. Genesis. There we are. Just arguing with my iPad for a second. There we go. Okay, Genesis chapter 1. And uh, I'm going to just, I'm not going to read the whole chapter again, but I'm just going to begin reading in verse 26. Then God said, Let us make man in our image, after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over the livestock, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them and said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And God said, Behold, I've given you every plant. And he goes on to talk about those things. So uh, just, just stop there. So this morning we started talking about what this uh, means, this idea that God made us in his image from this chapter in, in, uh, in Genesis chapter 1. It probably means much more than this. There are other places the Bible talks about the image of God. But there are at least three things that that conveys to us when God says that he's made us in his image that are in the text right here in Genesis chapter 1. There are three ideas when he says, let us make men our image and let them and let them and let them. And so we talked about two of them uh, this morning. One of them was, does anyone remember the first one? Rule. That's right. Let's make man and let them rule, okay? Because we see in Genesis 1, God himself ruling and governing and setting things in order and bringing things into their proper function. And so he said, let us make man in our image. And as man looks at what God just did in order to, again, um, live out that image on the earth, he sees a God who's set order, who's set rule, who's establishing his kingdom. And we see that we're called to establish his kingdom in that same way. Or that God establishes it through us is probably a better way of saying that. That we are to bring out the proper function of things, whether that's parenting or marriage or work, and put everything in the order under God's government, the way that we're called to do. And when we do that, we are being his image on the earth, bringing glory to him, right? And then the second way we talked about this morning was? Phil. Phil. Good job. You guys got both of them. That's impressive. So Phil. Um, so the second way is God was filling the earth, and then he turned to Adam and Eve, and he said, now I want you to fill the earth the same way, that that filling involves uh, a cultivating, a bringing out the potential, which we briefly mentioned. That'll be something you have to pursue on your own. But it also means that reproduction of the image. Uh, and so we're supposed to be a people who are missional, going into all the earth and filling it um, with that image, reproducing it through uh, bringing the kingdom of God, preaching the gospel, and bringing out potential in whatever ever area we're in. And so when we look at God, we see this is the kind of God that he is. 
And this is what we're supposed to do. The third one uh, is one that um, is not really one I would want to talk about. I was just saying to Eric, like, should I just do something else? Uh, just because it's, <laughs> because it's a funny one. But the thing about it is, is if we're supposed to be heralds of what the Bible says, we don't always get a choice over what we say, do we? Because we have to be faithful to the text itself. And it says things that we wouldn't talk about at times. And so the third one that's clearly in here is in verse 27 when it says, So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. But there's this idea of God creating us as male and female that has something to do with his image. It says the same thing in Genesis chapter 5, verse 1. This is the book of the generations of Adam. When God created man, he made him in the likeness of God. Male and female, he created them. So God made man, male and female, he created them. There is this idea of a parallelism in Hebrew poetry in which you sometimes you say the same things, two, same thing two different ways. Sometimes you do it by contrasting. The Proverbs do this a lot. Sometimes you do it by making a statement and then detailing out what that means. So when God said he made man in his image, the question is, well, who is man? And he's saying, I made man in my image, in my image, in the image of God, he created him, male and female, second line of the parallel, he created them. So the him is them. Yeah. You follow that? Male and female. So we would use that sometimes older people who have been around for a while. It used to be in English when you were including both genders, you would just use the word he. I know that's changed in our day and age, but it's inclusive. So when it says, it's not just saying God made males in his image, it's that he made them in his image. But there's something about the them that matters in order to image out God. That's one of these things that we wouldn't have thought of necessarily, and I wouldn't have necessarily put in Genesis chapter 1. But God's saying, by creation design, in order to have my image in the earth, I need both male and female. That there's something about the way the male is created that is imaging out or, or championing something of who God is that men are specially designed to image out in the earth. And there's something about being a female and what it is to be a female and feminine that images out God in the earth. And so not only do we have to bring the kingdom and fill, but we have to embrace God's creative design of us as male or female. Now, I'm going to stay away from role issues today, just to be clear, because I don't believe that's primarily what's being talked about here. Um, but I am going to talk about what the Bible actually portrays as what males kind of champion in God's image and what females do because it's essential for us to understand the image of God. We can't avoid it. And that's why I'm saying it's something I wouldn't talk about except for the fact that this is what it says. We wouldn't have the image of God without having both men and women, without having both male and female. Now, part of this image of God is something that Steve has already brought out and that's that God is a communion. It's this multiplicity in one and this one that's multiple kind of idea that's hard to define. And so some of this is us as the church definitely image out God by us living together in unity though being multiple. But even though that's true, this passage itself roots it right in gender. <laughs> even beyond that, it's saying, well, that's true. I believe that's applicable to this passage, but the writer of this passage is saying, but it's something about being male and there's something about being female that again images out God peculiarly. And so we live in a day and age where this is a hot topic, isn't it? Um, particularly if you're younger, it's a hot topic. Gender is a pretty big deal right now and there is a rejection of gender. Um, there is a wide scale kind of attack on gender and on what it is. 
But the reality of the situation is I think that that is not just an attack on morality. I think that's an attack on the image of God. I have the reason why it is so, well, this doesn't make sense why this is such a big issue is because it's not just trying to fight something moral. It's that the enemy knows there's something peculiar in that, that God in his design created that the enemy wants to ruin. Because if I can ruin that, then all of a sudden the image of God is lost. If we lose the male and the female, we lose that image that's supposed to cover the waters like the earth, or like supposed to cover the earth like the waters cover the sea. Um, and so what I'm hoping to do tonight is to get us excited about the peculiar ways that we can reflect who God is. Now God, let's just say this in the outset, we all know this, God is not a gender, right? Because he is a spirit, it says. Of course, we know Jesus himself took on gender because he took on a body and he became a man, right? And as far as we know, he still has that body. He had a resurrected body when he appeared before uh, the disciples and ascended in that resurrected body. And so as far as we know, that's still the case. But God himself in his essence isn't a gender. So we're going to find that there's something in each gender that represents who God is. Did you follow what I'm saying there? There's something peculiar in there. I know it's going to be, at times, if you're from a conservative circle, there are certain aspects of this that might be challenging, but we're just going to be honest with the text of the scripture itself. Now, let me just also say this. I'm not talking about gender roles. I'm talking about championing an attribute of God. That's a different statement. Because sometimes we go too far in gender roles. You know, like I've heard people preach, well, the Bible says, you know, wives are to love your husbands. But husbands, you don't have to, or sorry, husbands love your wives from Ephesians 5, but you know, it's funny because wives don't have to love their husbands. You guys ever heard that thing? Someone said, which of course is simply just not true, <laughs> is it? Because if they read a little further into the pastoral epistles, it says older women teach the younger women to love your husbands, okay? And then not only that, we're supposed to love one another. And so on the flip side, we can see it and it says wives submit to your husbands. Well, see, wives are supposed to submit. Husbands aren't supposed to. Again, not true. <laughs> couple verses earlier, it says, you probably know this, submit to one another. Women got that right away. No, I'm just teasing. <laughs> I'm kidding. It's just because she knows the Bible. That's all. Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ, right? So obviously, are men supposed to submit? Yes. Yeah, so again, we have such a wooden, unfortunately, on the conservative side, we've had such wooden categories that sometimes we've been unhelpful to the conversation in trying to respond to, if we'd say, the more liberal erasing of them. Whereas the Bible seems to speak more in terms of, hey, women, I want you to champion this on behalf of all of creation so that even men can learn how to do this from the way you live this out. They can learn about themselves. Even in that passage, the wife's submission is supposed to reflect the church. Well, guess who's the church? Both men and women. So men are learning from their wives how they're supposed to respond to Christ. So again, it's not teaching something men aren't to do. It's teaching them how to do something. It's championing it. And the same thing with husbands loving their wives, championing that, and again, showing a certain kind of love that even women live in. So again, it's not an either or. You hear what I'm saying? It's a both and, but we champion it based on how God's created us. And there's something about embracing what it means to be a man and living that out that images God out and that allows that to be championed in the earth and teaches us all how to do it. So... I'm going to talk a little bit about each of these things, uh, pulling from different places in the Bible. I won't necessarily turn to all the passages for the sake of time, but I will quote them and realize that if we have this, we have the image of God. If we have male and female, if we have them being who they're supposed to be, we have the image of God. So let's start with men. All right? Ladies, should you normally go first? But I just like theirs better, so we're going to put that later. 
Men is first one. This one of the very first things the Bible calls men to do. If it says, okay, if I'm supposed to be male, what does it mean to be a man? Men are supposed to be those who are called to champion sacrifice and guarding. Adam was called to guard the garden. And we're going to see two work it, as we're going to get to a little bit later. But they're also called the sacrifice. It says in Ephesians chapter 5, Husbands, love your wife as Christ loved the church. And what did Christ do? Yep, he laid down his life for it, which he goes on to say, just as Christ laid down his life, so I want you to lay down your life for your wife. That men are called to be those who champion in society sacrifice. Um, there's a reason why, again, even from a biological standpoint, I know it's weird that these things feel controversial to say because they're just, just facts, <laughs> but men have this thing in their bodies called testosterone. It makes them stronger. It's just a fact of life, isn't it? It's weird that you can say these things and it feels like radical controversial statements. <laughs> but it's just the way it is. It tends to, does that, doesn't mean every man's stronger than every woman. Okay, let's just get that out of the way right now. Well, I know someone, you're right, okay? It's a generalization. Generalizations mean they're generally true and sometimes not true, okay? So generally speaking, you can talk, talk to young people a lot. I have to give all these qualifications with them. Um, is that uh, generally speaking, it makes them stronger and also makes them risk takers. It's why we've tended to, and I know this has changed, but tended to send men to war because they're the ones that are supposed to sacrifice. They're the ones that are supposed to lay down their lives. And that's something that they're supposed to champion in the earth because that's the kind of thing Christ would do. The men are not supposed to dominate or demean women in any way, which unfortunately that happens very often. But instead, they're supposed to be sacrificial for them. And those who are willing to risk their own comfort, willing to risk their own safety for the sake of others. It shouldn't be that when you hear a noise downstairs, you say, hey, honey, would you go downstairs and see what's going on down there? That that shouldn't be the case, should it? It should be that the man's like, all right, I'll go and I'll die and you call 911. So um, that maybe you're a little more optimistic than me, but... All I have is a baseball bat, so I don't even have a gun, so I don't know what's going to happen if someone breaks in. But, but again, men should be people who lead the way, who get up and help. There is, there is a thing in men that can get passive, can't we? We can just sit back and let things play out, kind of like Adam did with Eve, in which Eve was being tempted by the, by the serpent, and it says that Adam, who was there with her, which is funny, because after we have this whole interaction between the serpent and the woman, and kind of towards the end of it, it says, and Eve turned to Adam, who was with her. And it's like the whole time Adam's there and he's saying nothing. He's doing nothing. He isn't guarding. He isn't protecting. I'm not so sure that the serpent should have even been in the garden if Adam had done his job and been guarding the garden in the first place. But somehow he was just being passive. He was not sacrificing. He wasn't paying attention. He wasn't being involved. Hey guys, if we're honest sometimes with our families, we can be a little not involved. Is that true? <laughs> People are looking at me blankly. It can be that way, that sometimes we can be, not be willing to get up and get involved and not be self-sacrificing in the way that we're called to be self-sacrificing. It's a funny thing because even unbelievers know this. As much as they would say, you know, the equality thing, there was a, a series of articles that happened in back-to-back -back times. It was an interesting time, one, both of which were tragic, but one of which was the uh, shooting that happened at the Dark Knight showing. Do you guys remember that? That happened a few years ago. And on the media, there was this portrayal of several of the guys who jumped on their sisters, on their mothers, on their girlfriends, and saved their lives but sacrificed themselves. And they were being extolled as heroes as they should have been. But interesting, in close timing to that was the sinking of the Italian uh, cruise ship. You guys remember that? 
And you remember the big story about that is that the captain and the men were being shown as pushing the women and children aside and getting on the lifeboats themselves and sacrificing everyone else. And they were being crucified even in secular media because there's something innately that we know that says no men should be championing sacrifice. They should be doing these things on behalf of, of, of other people. This would be something that they should do. There's a, a man named Dr. Stinson who um, is a professor at Southern Seminary. And uh, he has this phrase he's always used. He told this story about his son because he always kind of was teaching his son these issues of, hey, if you're going to image out God as a man, you need to learn to sacrifice. So he said, listen, what we do as men is, is we go down so the girls go free. So he says, okay, so here's the phrase. The boy goes down so the girl goes free. And so he would tell him stories. He would do things to try to get that within his heart for him to understand it. And he was at home one time, Dr. Stinson, in his study, which he can see outside, I guess, from the story, um, that he could see outside to see where his son was playing. And his son was, was uh, young. Um, I don't remember the exact age he said, but it was, you know, like seven, somewhere, like it was a younger age, like around there. And um, he was outside uh, on his uh, wagon playing, and he was doing like a lot of kids do and a lot of boys do. He decided they live on a hill that he would go down on his wagon, you know, like a red wagon that has no steering. I'm going to jump on it. I'm going to fly down the hill, which sounds like fun, doesn't it? Even a lot of us guys now are like, I'll go. So, um, so he ran, jumped in the wagon and started flying down the hill. And his, his dad just kind of smiled like, yeah, looks like a boy. Except for the fact that down the hill he could see this little three-year-old girl that was starting to back out of her driveway on a tricycle, not really looking, just kind of whistling, being happy. And he saw, okay, he can't turn this. And he was realizing as it's getting closer that they're about to crash. Because this girl's oblivious to it and her timing is just coming out at the right time. And then out of a, all of a sudden he saw his son dive out of the wagon, pushing it to the side and start going head over heels down the street on the cement, obviously scraping himself and doing all this. And he runs outside and his boy is obviously crying and he picks up his boy and brings him in and he starts cleaning him up. And as he's cleaning him up, the boy says, boy goes down so the girl goes free, right, Dad? That just gives me hope for America right there. Come on. That's just fantastic. And he's like, this is what it's supposed to be because this is what our God is like. The reason we do this is not because of machoism. We do this because this is what God's like. That we've sinned and Jesus comes and says, I'll take that. I'll go down so that the bride goes free. I'll go down so she can have this. This is what our God's like. And when men live this way, what people see covering the earth is the glory of God. Because it sees us representing, this is what God's like. He's like this. He's not a man, but he's like this characteristic. He's sacrificial on behalf of his people. He, lay down, he lays down his life for all of us. And so in the same way, this is something that we should be doing all the time, is laying down our lives. All right, number two, because I've got to get through both genders. I need, to not, I need to not let myself get too lost at any point. Second thing he has, he's given a particular role in the word of God to bring identity and dignity. He's been a particular role. It got to in the word of God. You're going to see this throughout again. I'm, whatever you think about men and women teaching, lay that aside in the church. I'm just saying from Genesis 1, the command was given to Adam, and Adam was supposed to guard it and relay it to Eve. And we find that the, the man has this role that he's supposed to be in the word and using that to establish identity and establish dignity. Just like it says in the Ephesians 5 passage that a husband doesn't just lay down his, wife, his life for his wife, but he's also supposed to wash her with the word until she is beautiful and radiant, until she's established in her dignity. 
until she is who she's supposed to be. Like Steve was saying earlier today when God was speaking to him when he was, gar- was it gardening? Is that right? That he was gardening, that it's not his job to make her into it, you know, in that same way. But it's something that God does. It's not something that we do. But God uses us in certain ways as we speak the word of God and as we establish it for people to grow into what God's called them to be. That we wash, as it says in that passage, wash and restore her to her full place without spot or wrinkle. We find that even one of Adam's first jobs, as was mentioned, was that he named all the animals, establishing identity, establishing how they're supposed to be. That there is this job that a man brings an identity. That's the reason why, one of the reasons why, and I don't care if anyone carries on this practice, but the reason why the last name of the man is taken because it's the establishment of identity. It comes out of these biblical truths, whether we keep the practice or not is another issue. That we are supposed to restore dignity. That they bring a sense of dignity to things it used to be. And guys, I don't care about these things. Some of you are older and may appreciate them. I'm not saying we need to start doing these things. I'm just saying this is something a society understood at a time, okay? There was a time you always opened a door for a woman. There was a time where you always stood up at the table when a woman came or a woman left. Does anybody remember these times? And the reason they did this, a guy did this. Why the guy, not the girl? Because again, they knew there's an establishment of the dignity of the woman that the guy is supposed to own, that he's supposed to have, and that he's supposed to be establishing within his family. They were supposed to be treated that way, not like property or not someone that exists for our enjoyment, but something that we guard. It's part of what being a man is. This is an incredibly po- unpopular statistic, but it's been, it's been proven true in multiple studies. In 99% of people that have gender confusion, 99, so there's 1% this isn't true, but in 99, the father is passive, absent, non-existent, or abusive. So in 99% in which there's an identity confusion, according to multiple studies I've seen, it's because the father hasn't done his job in establishing identity and establishing who the person is supposed to be. This has been proven in multiple secular studies that children in large measure derive their sense of love from mothers, whether they feel loved, but they derive their sense of identity from their fathers. That they have that some kind of innate attraction that the father establishes them an identity and those who have lacked that are confused as to what their identity is. Again, I mean, studies you can quote with either way. All I'm saying is this is definitely something God's called us to do. These are the kinds of things Jesus did. Reestablished identity of people. He did it with tax collectors. He did it with sinners. He did it with people who are in minorities, people who are dejected in society. He would go to them, forgive, again, speak the forgiveness of God into their life, establish them then, again, with a sense of dignity as a human being. A woman gets thrown at his feet, and they all want a stoner, And his response, again, is to reestablish her identity. That when she's laying there, all she is is an adulteress, but that's not all she is in God's eyes. And so he says, all you without sin, you throw the first stone. Okay, now that we've cleared that out, I just want you to know, neither do I condemn you. That's not your identity. You're not this person. You're free from these things. I mean, that is so powerful, isn't it? And this is the kind of thing that men are supposed to do, that they're supposed to champion this. Women do it as well. It's not either, but men should be championing this in society. The establishment of identity, the establishment of dignity according to the word of God. This is something that should be different. But honestly, there are so many male role models out there where they just kind of act like idiots. Does that, can I say that? Sure. <laughs> I mean, there's so much, I mean, all the stuff that's been happening in the NFL and that's happening in sports, 
Um, I heard one commenter say, commentator saying, I don't know why we're so upset about all this stuff going on. Um, you know, they're just football players. They're just acting like everybody else. And I'm thinking, yeah, but that's the problem. They're supposed, we're, we shouldn't all be acting like this. Like we should have men who are models to society of the dignity and identity of the human being and that are guarding that in, the, in society and making sure that that's kept. So men should be doing this. Jesus did it all the time. We're to wash and we're to restore. That's what we're called to do, to take the word of God and wash and restore. Just like we do with our wives, we should do it with our kids. It's something we should champion. Take the word of God, establish identity, establish dignity. Number three thing that men are called to do that Adam clearly was called to do was to work, right? <laughs> that it said, Adam, I want you to work the ground. It says again in the Ephesians 5 passage, when it's talking to husbands, I want you to care for and nourish. I want you to provide for in the same way. This isn't a comment on whether women do or don't work. That's a side issue. Remember, it's not either or. But what I am saying, there is something in men that are supposed to work and provide if they can, for their family. In whatever way that they can work, they're supposed to work. This is very much the image of God. The Father is always working, and so am I, Jesus said. And in the same way, men shouldn't be lazy, but it should be those who work and champion work and champion provision in the earth. This is again what Adam did in Genesis 2. He was called to work the ground and keep the garden, make the rest of the world look like that. And so the pattern was that he would walk with God in the cool of the day, but then in the rest of the time, he would go to work. Interesting, isn't it? That again, when we sometimes think, I don't know what you think about the future, but sometimes when you think of the future, the new heavens and the new earth, I don't know if you just think, you know, there's, all, there's comments, different comments that are made as if we are just going to stand around and sing all day, which no, nothing wrong with singing all day. But I'm not so convinced that that's the total picture. Because in the original creation, before any sin, the picture was, hey, I've created you, now go work. Interesting. Before sin? Yeah, no, this is part of my eternal. I want you to get to know me by going and working, and after you work, come walk with me in the evening, and we'll talk about what you did. I'm not so sure there's not going to be future work for us. In fact, I think there are several passages that seem to indicate, hey, you've been faithful over five cities, now you're going to have ten. You've been faithful over living, now you're given much. One of the great things is how God rewards you for doing a job well is he gives you more to do. Isn't that great? He must think work's a good thing. We seem to think that, you know, we do something well, we should be able to be able to do nothing afterwards. But I think God thinks differently than us. And so it seems like we're going to have lots to do in whatever eternity looks like. That we've been faithful in a little, we'll be given a lot more to do. But either way, men champion that that's a good thing, that our being productive, our working in these ways are something that we should be doing. And so man learned in his relationship with God by that pattern, working in the day, and then again, talking with God in the night. In fact, Charles Spurgeon once said this. He said, there is no fatigue so wearisome as that which comes from lack of work. <laughs> I think that's a great quote, isn't it? There is no fatigue so wearisome as that which comes from lack of work. Again, that's, that's an issue with a lot of young people, that they feel so tired because they don't have productive work. Um, and that instead, we need to be those who give ourselves to work. There is a boredom and a rampant depression that's out there that's due to a lack of being engaged in productive and meaningful work for God, work that extends his kingdom. And so God says, hey, I want my image in the earth, so I'm going to create men, and what I'm going to call them to champion, in various parts in the scriptures, I want you to champion sacrifice, I want you to champion um, identity and dignity in the word of God, and I want you to champion work. 
And then he also creates female, and he says, I want you to champion certain things in the earth as well. So let's talk a little bit about this one. I think this one's a little more not straightforward, maybe in our, in our society, something we don't talk about as much. But the very first one is, women are to champion sufficiency. That's cool, isn't it? You should be more excited about that, women. Come on. Women are to champion sufficiency. Okay, I tried it twice. There we got one. All right, I'll go for three. Women are to champion sufficiency. All right, that's better. In the beginning, God created Adam, and Adam was insufficient to do the job that needed to be done. It was not good. He couldn't function the way he should, and so God made woman in order to do it. God needed Adam not just to fill the earth, sometimes we apply it only to that, but to rule it as well. Because Adam was insufficient to do that by himself. He needed her for both things. And so she was made. And here's that word that's oftentimes frustrating in Scripture. Is it says that God made woman to be his helper. Okay. That's, um, when I talk to young women, I won't make you guys do this. And I say, how many get really excited when you hear that you've been created to be a helper? Do you know how many people usually raise their hands? Not very many. Maybe a couple. It feels, you know what I'm talking about, don't you, right now? It feels a little bit like a demeaning word, doesn't it? Like, okay, he's got the main job, and here you are, daddy's little helper, to help out with everything. That tends to be the way we use the word, isn't it? We tend to think that way, but again, the problem is because of the way we use the word, not the way the Bible uses the word. There is one other person in the Old Testament that's actually called man's help. Does anybody know who that is? Oh, God himself. Wait a second, apparently this isn't a demeaning word, this is a title that God takes on himself. So he's not trying to say you're something less, he's saying, no, you're representing a different aspect of me, because I'm man's help, and this needs to be demonstrated in the earth as well. So just as he's sacrificing, you're demonstrating help. And again, it doesn't mean inferior helper, it means alongside. I mean, you've probably heard this before, I think it was... Uh, maybe Matthew Henry where I first read it or something like that where he talked about women being taken from the rib of Adam to be alongside Adam, not from his foot to be beneath him, not from his head to be over him. I think he does front and back too, but I forget what he says. But he's saying he's trying to be alongside of them. To be a helper means to be along with. Because again, in the New Testament, who is called the, our helper who comes alongside us? The Holy Spirit, again, a divine title. So the problem is we don't understand the word the way the Bible uses it. We translate it into our own setting. God isn't demeaning women. He's dignifying women. To say that that's a bad role is like saying the Holy Spirit got the raw deal in the Godhead. I don't think we'd say that, would we? I mean, we wouldn't say, well, it stinks to be him. I think he's just as valuable as the other members of the Godhead. I mean, we've heard a lot about it. Steve's done such a good job explaining it. It's hard to explain it, but it's a divine title is what he's bestowing on a woman right then. And again, I think any Hebrew reader would have recognized it because knowing that I know the only other person that has this role is the Holy Spirit. In fact, the whole imagery of women is involved in this. This whole idea of women are the ones who give birth because again, we are born again by the Holy Spirit. As he gives birth, they're imaging out what God himself does in his creation. It's a, it's a divine role that they've been given to do. It's this idea of they're sufficient to whatever needs to be done. So when they say they're helper, when the Holy Spirit's involved in a situation, it means whatever needs to be done, he can provide, right? And women seem to have that ability. They can walk in a room and just see what needs to be done. They can see how things need to be helped. They can see how things need to be provided for. In fact, 
Here's going to be the hardest thing to take tonight just because it's so hard in our image. But the word El Shaddai comes from a root word, which some of you may know, which means breast. And it's what it literally means. It might not be a helpful translation. And I know it's, can you say this word in church? But it's in the Bible, so I'm going to go ahead and say it is it actually means breasted one. That's what it means. Now, we don't want to translate that, so we don't go there. But the reason being is it's saying when a baby is born, the entire provision that that baby needs is in the mother. There is this season, you know, when babies are first born. I don't know if you guys, I was so excited for my baby to get here. So excited, so excited. Then it comes and it's like, it doesn't need me. I mean, I can get up in the night with it, but I can't really do anything. I can change its diaper, but then she needs her. You know, like, what's this? Right, don't you need me for something? No, there'll be one day he'll want to play ball with you. He'll want to do things. But she's sufficient for all of his needs. And the Bible uses that title. The reason it uses that, it's saying that's what God's like. He's the one that's more than sufficient for everything you need. It's a picture, again, of femininity. And not that God's fat female, but that champion characteristic is something that women show of God. You read Proverbs 31, and basically by the time you're done with it, you're like, she can pretty much do anything. Isn't that true? You're like, that's a pretty good chapter. In fact, it can be overwhelming, but I don't think it's trying to give you a checklist of everything you need to get done. I think it's showing the dignity of woman and her sufficiency for whatever needs to be done. If there's something needs to be provided here, she does that. Something needs to be handled there, she does that. Whatever it is. So what is the Proverbs 31 woman? Woman who is sufficient by the power of God for the task at hand. And so again, it doesn't mean just kind of manager or housekeeper or anything like that. It means she represents the sufficiency of God. Whatever has to happen, and women often have to do that. They have to juggle lots of things, don't they? They have to be mother, lover, friend, counselor, doctor, whatever's going on, and they can do it. It's one of the reasons women can sometimes juggle multiple things at a time because they're sufficient to whatever happens, for whatever needs to happen. So again, this is the first thing that women are supposed to champion is this sense of sufficiency. Number two, women are created to champion out beauty. Again, this might be one we don't immediately think of, but it's true. Um, that women are to champion out beauty. That one of the aspects of our God is that he's beautiful. We sing about it, don't we? About God's beauty. Um, and they champion that out in the earth. Now let me just say something about this for a second. There has been a, a systematic attack on women in terms of their physical beauty. That they live in a society, I think we all hear about it, in which there is this constant nitpicking about the way women look and this constant attack on them on one side and then on the other side of society is this exploitation of women through pornography. And it creates this kind of milieu in which it's almost a negativeness on the beauty of women and they constantly can feel under pressure that they don't measure up. And again, I don't think this is just about lust, though in part it is, I think it's again about attacking creation design to destroy what God made as beautiful. Because if we go back to Genesis 1 and 2, the language shows that there's a progression in creation until the creation of women. And women is actually the pinnacle of the creation story. You know, God changes words from the way he made man and the way he made woman. When it says he made man, it's just a simple, he just made him. So, you know, box them together. There you go. You're out there. You're good. But when he made woman... It actually says he fashioned and built her. So it's using the kind of language an artist uses. 
So what it's saying is God in his artistry, the best creation, the most beautiful creation he could make was women. So if that's the case, it takes total sense that Satan would want to destroy every woman's sense of their beauty. It didn't say God created women to be beautiful. Do you understand that? He created her beautiful. It's a fact. In fact, you could just look in a mirror and say, if you're a woman, I'm the best God can create. This is the best he can do. It's just a fact. You don't need to measure up or down to anything and the enemy will try to attack it. It's interesting in the New Testament, Paul says it this way. He says, let not your beauty be only in outward adornment. Did you get what he just said? <laughs> I think sometimes we blow right past it. That's right. I need to focus on the inside. And yes, you do. That's his point. Let it be inward. But you know what he just assumed in the first part of the phrase? You already are beautiful outward, so don't worry about that. That's what he said. Let it not be only here. It's clearly here already. You already are beautiful because God made you. So you're beautiful. So let's not worry about that. Instead, worry about making sure you're inwardly beautiful because that's a done deal. Again, he's actually affirming it because God, according to creation, made women as beautiful. And this is kind of, again, Paul's, or Adam's reaction. You know, Adam is, a, is I guess he goes to sleep in some way, and he's, he's, as he himself has seen all the animals, he sees that there's not one of them that's a good pair for him. Uh, it's kind of a funny little moment in the creation story, isn't it? As if, as if God's praying them, he's giving them names and showing Adam that there's not one that matches them, which seems pretty obvious as you go through it, as he's going through this, and he's kind of at a desperate place by the end. But then God puts him to sleep, and then he brings woman, and when it comes, when he sees woman, his first reaction is, it's an unutterable thing. It's almost like, whoa, and then he says, that's it. That's it. That's the exact phrase like in the Hebrew. That's it. That's, there it is. Flesh of my flesh, bone of my bones. And so again, there is this sense like any artist in which it's being brought, the first reaction is, that's beautiful. That's it. And so women, again, champion the beauty of God, not just in outward adornment. Please don't understand it only that way. I wanted, I wanted to hit that because the enemy attacks it, but in the inward gracefulness of the way they live their lives is the emphasis in the New Testament. That both inside and out, they're champions of beauty when it comes to that way. It's something that we should, again, respect and not exploit, but respect and realize that God's made them to show the beauty of creation. Women have a ability to make things beautiful. And again, this is the statement in Ephesians, prevented, um, presented without spot or wrinkle, but in splendor, in beauty. That's a husband supposed to prevent his wife, present his wife in her beauty because, again, that's what she champions. And so she champions that sense of beauty that God also has. Finally, the third one, which is the obvious one. You know it's coming. Female are, or women are supposed to champion submission and service. That it is something the Bible clearly says. We can't get around it. They are a helper, and they serve the, the commission, obviously, that's given to both men and women. And while men are maybe in some ways called to lead, women are to champion submission, to show what submission looks like, to sh teach the church how to submit. Wives, by the way, you submit to your husbands and by living out submission within the earth. They're supposed to be a helper and they're supposed to submit. Now again, this is kind of a tension because here's the thing about it. God made you to be a helper. And jumping back to the first one for a second. That means women have an ability to get guys to do things. It's just true. And it's something you're actually, it's interesting with Eve because Eve was called to be a helper. Just like Adam didn't guard, you know, Eve actually did help Adam. It says she turned to him and showed him, see, let me help you see this. This fruit is actually good to eat. 
This fruit is actually a good thing. You should try this. This is actually, she actually did help him, didn't she? She just helped him in the wrong direction. Do you follow what I'm saying? Here's the thing, women. You are a helper. It's not saying, hey, be one. You actually are. You'll either help in a good direction or a bad direction. It's your very nature. Do you follow that? And so it can be manipulative. So it's a safeguard that it seems God has said, I want you to champion submission to make sure that you're helping in the right direction, to make sure you're helping in the way that things should go. That there is a sense that women show the sense of giving themselves for the sake of another. I mean, there's no more clear way than the fact that God chose women to be the ones who bear children. And any woman who's born a child, who's had a child, who's grown inside of them knows that you have to give up your life for that child, don't you? Literally, this other life is growing within you. And you don't have a choice about it. You have to, again, hardwired kind of physically, this total submitting of yourself to the life of another, which shows the kind of submission God actually lives, as we've heard about, within the communion of his own existence. Jesus submitting to the Father, the Holy Spirit submitting their submission to one another. As Steve talked about, it's like when you read the Gospels, it's almost like this competition over who's going to outglorify the other one at times. And there's this sense of, again, submission back and forth. And in the same way, women are to champion that to teach all of us how to submit. So it's similar to laying down our lives, but slightly different. It's just a championing of submission. I believe this is going to be attacked, obviously, and it is attacked, but I don't think it's about roles. I don't think it's about who's in charge. I think it's about embracing, championing this characteristic of God for the image of God to be seen in the earth. So I think sometimes the enemy wants to make it about different categories. But women, it's about saying, it's not a demeaning thing to say, I want to lay down my life in a similar way that husbands do. I want to show submission in the same way that Christ said, I only do what I see the Father do. And I only hear what he says. I want to show that kind of submission. And so they champion that and even teach their husbands how to live submitted to God. And so I believe as we do these things, again, hopefully this is a little more practical. These are things that we can live out on a daily basis that help us to show the image of God in the earth. God said, I've made you in my image. So what does that mean? It means you bring a kingdom and you bring rule. It means you fill out the earth and you bring out its potential, but it also means you embrace the fact that God has made you as male or female. And in taking that embrace, we champion what is peculiar to, for males to champion, peculiar for females to champion. And I think it's going to be a testimony to the world. If we can actually get a hold of this right now, this gender issue within a society, I know I can just speak for our own churches. It's a huge testimony right now, our getting a hold of this issue within a society that's completely confused by it. And it's a rescue. It's a safe haven for people because a lot of young people are growing up and they actually want some clarity on these types of things. I was teaching these things recently to our youth group and it went the best it's gone anywhere. Got to be honest with you, they were excited about it because someone finally told them what it means. Because all they've been told is it doesn't matter what you are. And that just leads to meaninglessness and depression. And instead of saying, no, this actually matters. It matters that you're a girl. That's important. Because it's something about the image of God you can champion. It matters that you're a boy. Because both genders are attacked in certain ways. So I believe this is something we should champion. Amen? Amen. All right, before we go, can we do something? Can I have someone get up in, on the piano just for a second? I just, I've been trying to preach. Have you ever tried to do two things at once? Women are better at this than men because they're more sufficient. <laughs> this whole night while I've been trying to preach, God just keeps speaking to me about people. Um, thank you. We're playing the piano. See, woman, she's sufficient. I needed something and she could do it. It just illustrates my point. Um, 
I just feel like God keeps giving me words for people. This, I mean, this isn't something I would typ- I don't typically do. I would want to do this privately, but I don't always see people after this. It's not like at home. And so I just want to take a few seconds and just kind of give some prophetic words. Is this okay? If I, yeah, okay, thank you. Yeah, it won't, I don't think it'll take real long. Um, it's actually bothered me. It's distracted me the whole time I've preached. I should have done this first because <laughs> I've been trying to concentrate on what I'm saying and then the whole time underneath in my spirit, I just, every time I look at someone, I'm like, okay, stop. I just, I need to preach. Um, so let me just take a few, a few minutes, okay? Let's just close our eyes for a second. Let's just turn our attention to God. Um, it's not, I, I just feel like it's, again, I'll just deliver them as is. I don't necessarily need to pray for anybody. I just want to... <clears throat> deliver things as they are. So the first thing, guys, um, I'm, I'm, I'm the worst possible person to name. Steve Miller and Kathy, right? Got it. I'm so proud of myself right now. All right. Um, guys, honestly, what I heard God say when I was looking at you guys while I was speaking is to not grow weary in well-doing. I just heard the scripture, don't grow weary in well-doing because you will reap a harvest in due time. And I just saw the enemy whispering discouragement into your hearts and into your ears because of the lack of fruit in seeds that you're sowing. Like I actually, this is kind of almost like a reverse parable of the sower. I actually saw you sowing seeds into like thorny ground and into bad ground. And whereas in the parable, obviously the seeds destroyed weirdly enough, these were, this was a durable seed. And it started to grow up and it started to push out the thorns over time. And it started to break through the concrete. And what I felt God saying is that you guys are sowing seeds into difficult situations and that you're not going to see the fruit right away. But in years, like decades, years, that seed is actually powerful. He's given you powerful seed that's going to endure. And then in some people's lives, it's going to break out in their life 10 years from now, 15 years, 20 years from now. And so don't grow weary in the things you're doing on a daily basis. Does that make sense? Okay, because there's going to be this enemy. When the enemy comes and tries to whisper weariness, it doesn't matter what you're doing. It's not making a difference. You're not making a dent. You just need to be quick to fight that in your thinking and say, no, it's not true, and grab the promise. Whenever he says it, say, no, actually, I'm going to reap in due time. It's going to take time, but it's going to come eventually, okay? Uh, Stephen, what's your name? Mike. Okay, you too. Again, while I was speaking, I just, I, I looked at you guys, and I felt like God saying, um, with you guys. You reminded me of David's mighty men, uh, about two of them in particular that I'm going to talk about in a second. One of them is kind of funny, so I keep giggling, but um, <laughs> that there is this passage where it talks about David's mighty men and the things that they did, and I felt like God said, I've called each of you to be mighty men in the church. It's something I've called you to do. It's what you're going to be that you're going to have to grow up in. It's going to take patience, but you're going to have to fight some battles. You're going to have to be people who fight for some things. And Stephen, I remember the guy in, who fought over the lentils. Do you remember this story? One of David's mighty men, it <laughs> names them all, and it's one of these great moments in which it's like, and this one fought for a field of lentils and defeated the enemy so they couldn't have lentils. What, I'm, I'm, when I read that the first time, I'm like, are you kidding me right now? Like, give them the lentils. Who cares about these things? But the issue is they were God's lentils. And it might have seemed like a small issue, but it wasn't a small issue to him. This was a strategic issue because they're God's lentils. And I feel like God's going to give you a vision to see certain things. And other people are going to think they're small issues. And they're going to say, why are you fighting for this? Okay? And I don't mean fighting other Christians. Please don't hear that the wrong way. Um, 
case the church hears this wrong. Steve's going to come at us with a sword if we come against what he's saying. That's not what I'm saying. But there's going to be small issues that even at times in the body of Christ, they might feel it's a small issue. You're not fighting against them, but you're fighting for to, to protect this. Does that make sense? And I feel like he's going to give you a vision to see these things, but other people aren't going to see it. And don't let that frustrate you. Okay, be patient with it because you know you're guarding something that's important to God. Other people look at it and say, okay, fine, fight for the lentils. We're going to move on to something else. But God knows, no, these, those are my lentils. It matters, okay? Um, and the other one was the guy who was writing that same passage and it says he fought and he just kept fighting until his hand froze to his sword. And then when he was done, it couldn't be peeled out of his hands. And you find that this guy was mighty because he just did not give up. And he kept fighting. And I felt like God saying that there are going to be issues in your life that aren't going to happen quickly. It's not going to develop quickly. But I want you to keep your grip on the sword. And I want you to keep fighting. And I want you to keep fighting, whether it's promises he's made to you, whether it's things that you want to see, whatever the issue is, it's not going to come in some great mighty blow. But it's going to come in the consistency of you never taking your grip off the sword and keeping consistently, diligently, constantly fighting for the issue and not giving up. Does that make sense what I'm saying? All right. And then what's your name? Lydia? Okay. I kind of, I'm so happy you gave a testimony. I wish you hadn't given a testimony because I, the only reason being is I just don't want you to doubt what I'm about to say because this is before that. Okay. Um, so it's not connected to that. But I felt like God say that the joy of the Lord is going to be your strength and that God is going to surprise you with things that are going to make you joyful and there are going to be things that you thought God wouldn't do for you. They'd be things that you thought, again, that's what I'm saying. I wish you kind of hadn't given the testimony, but please believe it anyway, okay? Um, is these things that, but I'm happy for Steve's sake that you did give the testimony because I'm sure it was encouraging to him. But um, there were these things that, again, within your own heart that were like, okay, I, I mean, I, things you're almost like praying for other people, believing for other people. And then I just saw God giving you these gifts and then you opening them and you're just shocked at what they are. Like, I, I can't believe he gave me this. I didn't think he would give me this. This is what I was actually praying for someone else. Um, and that he's going to give you a selfless heart though that isn't preoccupied. Like you're praying for someone else and he's surprising you with gifts and with joy. And so I believe God's going to do that in your life and surprise you in certain ways. Um, I should know your name because you told me it. Abby, thanks, Abby. Um, Abby, I felt like, I, again, while I was speaking and doing things, I felt like God's reminded me of this verse in the Bible where it talked about them increasing in knowledge um, at an ex expedited rate. And I actually felt like, God, I saw you walking, and you kind of turned a corner, and you came into a, like, you know those moments where people get excited at Christmas, and they're like, ah, and they get other things like that kind of thing. Except I saw you turn a corner, and it opened to a vista that was some, like an unexpected vista. Like when you're driving around, and I don't know if you've ever done this. I've done this like maybe in West Virginia. You're driving around a corner, and then all of a sudden there's this amazing view that just comes out, and you can see forever, and it's just like that. And you're supposed to be driving, and you're like, like this kind of thing, and every car crashes, and then you move on. So... I felt like God's saying, he's going to start to bring you into revelation quickly. You're going to start to do some things that could be a bit overwhelming. You're going to start to see some things at a very, very fast pace that you might not have expected to. Um, but he's actually going to give you the ability to handle it and not, because I almost saw you when you saw the view. It's like you kind of, oh, I need to study here a bit because this feels a little quick. Um, 
But I actually felt like he's just going to bring you into Revelation. So he wants you to be in his word and be into things and not be intimidated because you're going to just suddenly find yourself getting things. You're just going to, just like this, just like this, like thing after thing after thing after thing after thing. Um, and so I think he's going to bring you into Revelation in that way. So obviously we'll leave that one with you, but I think that's what he's going to do. Um, Steve, I actually had one for you as I was speaking. I felt God say that he wants to bring you into a season when he's going to put the anointing of a father on you that he wants you to begin to father his children. And, I, and I, I thought this to be really clear, that he wants you to know, and again, you know this, but I, I just, this is why I felt like God say, they're actually my children, they're my sons, they're not your sons. They're my sons, but I want you to represent my, my heart, my father heart to these sons. And this is gonna take time from your schedule. I don't, again, do with it what you want. He's going to take time for your schedule. It's going to be sacrificed. Some people aren't going to like it because they want time over here. But I'm actually calling you to father another generation. And I said, I feel like God said he's going to bring three kinds of sons to you. One of which is going to be like a Timothy son. And that's someone who's actually going to help you in what God's still got for you in your life. Uh, and it's, that's the kind of son that's going to carry it on even after you're gone. And so those are like, hey, send me this person, this person. And some of those, you actually, they come to you, but some of those God's going to put in your heart first. Like when you're going places and he wants you to not be afraid to ask for him. To ask for him and say, hey, send me this person because he's helpful to me. Send me John Mark. Send me this. So I, again, when you're traveling, you, you know, however you're going to work that out. But that's the first kind. The second kind are going to be seasonal. And so they want you to be open-handed with these sons because these are not ones that are going to stay in your house, so to speak. There's ones that I need, that, that God's going to particularly anoint you to help them for a certain season, to establish them in certain ways. And then he wants you to release them and just let them go. And again, at times, just being honest with everything, at times that's going to feel, some of the departures were great. Some of the departures felt like a rejection. But it actually wasn't a rejection. It's God just has a different plan for them. They weren't seeing it quite clearly enough to have the maturity to handle that. So they felt they had to reject you to move into it. But that's not the case in your own heart. Guard your heart on that. But instead, it's coming into the things that God's called them to. And so that season and the third kind was just any, a, a momentary thing. Like you're just going to be talking to someone and in that moment, the anointing of fathering is going to come on you to deal with an issue right there in that moment in this young person's life. And you may never even see them again. But it's not an ongoing kind of fathering. It's just in that moment, you deal with the issue. But that God's going to bring this anointing on you. Okay. Um, Tom, uh, this one was, a it's, a, it's a little strange, but um, it's just, again, what I felt like God say is, he reminded me of this moment in which Saul, God had chosen Saul to be king, right? You're not Saul, by the way, in the story. God had chosen Saul to be king. And Samuel had gone and anointed Saul king. And then a Saul didn't obey God. And there was this time where God told Samuel, okay, I'm done with Saul. It's time for Saul to be done. And then so Saul, Samuel comes, says, Saul, the kingdom's gone with you. And then the next chapter, God comes to him and says, why do you weep for Saul? I've already moved on. I've got David. To go into another place. And he says, so I want you to go to anoint David. And Samuel was mourning. And I felt like actually, actually when the, the word shift came in the body of Christ, it was the minute God started speaking this one to me. I felt like God is going to anoint you to recognize shift. 
okay, when shifts are happening. There's going to be a wisdom in you, particularly for the church. Um, but even, even wider than that, I think this is for your own life. I felt like God's saying, I have Davids for you. And I don't mean people, but that means plans that are very different than your past has been. I felt that this is, this is, I know we had this conversation, but I felt like this way saying, and to not mourn over the loss of something because God has Davids that he wants you to go to. And he's also not just, he's going to do that in your life personally, but he's also going to get you, may give you an ability to do that in the church to see, okay, guys, this was Saul and it was good and it's not good now and it's time for this and it's time for us to shift. Let's not mourn over this anymore. Time to change direction. It's time for David. Um, so he's going to do that in your life personally. I don't know what those means. I, I wish I did. Sorry. I wish I knew what David was, but I didn't. But it's purposes that are different than what you would have thought. Because Samuel never thought Saul would fit. Would, it'd be time for Saul to be done. But you're going to be that transitional person to shift between things. All right. Um, I don't know your names. I haven't met you guys. What are your names? Sorry. It's okay. You were just lost in the presence of God somewhere. So Dan and Joy, okay. Um, I, what I felt like as I was speaking with you guys, just, I mean, it has to do with, with worship um, and these things. And, and I was reminded of David um, playing on his harp. And can I just say it's great that you play 12-string guitar. This has nothing to do with the word. But it's been so long since I've heard of 12-string. And you have two 12-string guitars in one band. It's like 24 strings. It's amazing. All right. Um, uh, I just do think it's amazing. <laughs> but anyway, so um, I just felt like with you guys, um, I felt like God's going to put a prophetic anointing on you in worship. And I was reminded of the, the time when David played. I know this is maybe a common thing, but again, it's what I felt like God say, where David played in the end, the demon left Saul that was tormenting Saul. Remember that? And I felt like God's, I felt God's pleasure in your heart for his presence is what I felt, the sense of it. And you actually have a heart for his presence, I believe, again, in what God was saying to me, you judge it, that is actually beyond anything you've experienced. Um, that there's actually been a distance between what you've wanted. Maybe that's even been a frustration at times. Um, but I felt the pleasure of God in your desire for his presence. And interestingly enough, my immediate reaction was, okay, so they're just going to come and do amazing times in which they sense the presence of God. But that's not actually what I felt. I felt he said, because I'm pleased with that, I'm going to anoint them to set other people free while they lead worship. And so I don't even think this is something you're always even going to be aware of. Like you're just, it just feels normal to you. And you don't know it, but in worship, this person gets sets free and this person gets sets free and this person gets sets free. And they wouldn't even necessarily connect it because it's not like a, okay, I'm going to play this and it's now going to set you free. You're just doing what you're doing, but God's going to do those things because he's pleased with your heart and your desire for him. Um, and that also there's going to be some adjustment in it though, because then there will be times when God will prophetically speak to you to go down certain roads, like even in the middle of when you're worshiping. And he wants you to be flexible to pursue certain things at certain times. Just be ready to make quick turns, be ready to do things, kind of maybe a little bit. I mean, I don't know how you prepare now, but don't be so tied to a set. Do you know what I'm saying? But be willing to be flexible, which I'm sure is your heart anyway. But, um, but anyway, I just do believe that's going to happen. I don't know when, but I believe people will be healed. I believe people who come in anxious and tormented by things will be at peace. Um, that these things will start to, start to take place. That God's going to do this in your life. Amen. All right. That's all I had, guys. Um, again, I don't like doing that because it always feels like, well, why didn't I get a word? But God has a word for you. You're loved. <laughs>